Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of VoxGig.com, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting, and attending. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And finally, before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to simplecast.com, first and last word in podcasts, who have kindly come on board as our first ever sponsor. I don't think that Jay Allen has ever been afraid of public speaking. He has a wonderful story about his first time, literally being asked to speak on the fly without any notes and having a wonderful success. And through that, discovering that he had a natural passion and talent for public speaking and ultimately turning that into an amazing career. So let's hear what Jay Allen has to say. There's lots to learn. Jay, it is wonderful to have you on the Fireside Box Gig podcast. Thank you so much for coming along today. My pleasure. It's delightful to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Awesome. You're a public speaker. You make a living, mostly, I guess, from public speaking, which is a fantastic place to be. It's a place that many of our listeners aspire to get to. But you have to start somewhere. So walk us through the beginning. How did you become the Jay Allen that you are today? I fell into public speaking quite by accident. I'd been invited to go to a charity do in order to be able to raise funds and awareness for a national charities to which some years earlier um, I'd been privileged and fortunate enough to have benefited from. And it was the first time I'd, I'd had a, a real prompt or prod to be able to say, hang on a minute, you benefited from this charity that you've subsequently gone on to do all right in business, and yet you failed to put your hand in your pocket and reimburse them for some of the money, money and funds that they've been kind enough to invest within you. Uh, and when I saw this charity was coming to town, I thought, do you know what, it's, it's now the time to be able to do just that. They were selling either individual tickets or a table of 10. It was an evening event. It was a three-course meal and, a, and an after-dinner speaker raising money for this charity. Right. And I thought, well, I'll, right. I'll pay for a table of 10. I'll bring some family and some friends and a, a few colleagues and uh, some clients with me and fill the table. And when the speaker gets up and they're looking for donations and, and money towards the charity, I'm going to reach into my pocket and give them a sizable donation as opposed to a 20 or 50 quid or so. It had been my intent to be able to donate £5,000 to the charity that day of, of my way of being able to give back for what they did for me and subsequently perhaps let me off the hook a little with regards to how much of a schmuck I now felt having not done it earlier. Right. And then I found out that the person coming up to deliver the speech is somebody I'd previously worked with 10, 12 years earlier, who I didn't even know now I'd left that employment and now works for the charity. And I thought, no way, it'll be a, a really good chance to be able to catch up with Kelvin and to present him with the check and, and everything will be all the wiser and, and, and so much better off. And then when I got to the venue and was, was checking in um, with my guests, I knew the event organizer quite well. We were in the same B&I together. And he was, he was quite panicky. He was quite frantic. And I called him on one side. And I said, oh, David, you know, you, you do events for a living. What, what seems to be the problem? 
And he says, Jay, you'll never believe this. The, the guest speaker has, has been involved in a car accident on the oh way to the venue. Uh, nightmare. Massively. He said, thankfully, he's not that badly injured. He says, but, but he's in no fit stage to be able to deliver a, a coherent speech this evening as I've sent him to A&E to get checked out. He says, I've got, I've got 280 guests coming for dinner and I haven't got a speaker. Um, he says, my wife's currently on the internet trying to, to download a few things to talk about and fill the day because otherwise I'm going to have to cancel. And I happened to mention to him, listen, listen David, I says, I've come along today, one, because I know the speaker, I, I previously worked with him, and subsequently I've benefited from this charity. If there's anything I can do to be able to either help or give, give a few words of advice, I'm more than happy to do so. And, and my intent there had been, if you want me to sit with your wife and tell you a few ditties before the event, <laughs> yeah. then, then let me know. Jay, that's a wonderful suggestion. Thank you very much. Which table are you sat at? I says, well, according to my tickets, I'm paid table 17, somewhere over there at the back. Oh, no, Jay, that's not good enough. We'll have to have you moved. Can you come and sit on table four with your guests? I says, well, exceptionally kind, David. That's very close yeah. to speech. That's wonderful. And, and without further ado, we sat down, we had a few drinks. Everything was going particularly well. His wife didn't come along and ask for any ditties, and therefore I assumed things to be working effectively. And we'd had our starter, and we had our main course, and then David got up as a compare and said hello to everyone and this and the other. And he said, unfortunately, Calvin's not with us this evening. He's had an accident. And I'm thinking, well, that's a real shame. He says, however, <laughs> we have got a replacement. And I'm thinking, brilliant. Great. Yeah, okay. Ladies and gentlemen, Jay Allen. And in that moment, I became a speaker. Wow. And that's every speaker's worst nightmare. I'd still got roast yeah. beef in my mouth. <laughs> oh, Maybe a glass of wine or two. Did that help, do you think? A glass of wine had certainly helped me with the Dutch courage to get up. Um, and a stiff gin afterwards helped me to be able to pop my nose afterwards. <laughs> had you spoken before? I mean, uh, you know, had you acted on stage or did you have any experience? Well, uh, yes, to, get, to, to give it a little bit of credence. So first of all, I was brought up into a very musical family. I was in a band from the time I was about 12 or 13. Okay. So I'd done some stage work as a musician uh, and I knew that side of it. And then in my previous role, when I'd actually known Calvin and we'd worked together, I was an adult education trainer and I'd spent some time teaching in a classroom. You had experience you could draw on. And then the subject matter that you spoke about that night. No, it was completely off, completely off the cuff from personal experience. Yeah. But it was personal experience. It was personal stories. Yes. So you yeah. could draw on a reserve of passion for the material, if, if I want to put it in a sort of a bland way, but it was from the heart. Yes, absolutely. And ironically, one of the most impactful things that happened that evening, three things happened as a result of that night. First of all, um, I was very gr grateful and flattered to have received a standing ovation on my first ever appearance, 280 people. At oh, that's feet. killing Jay. That is um, killing us. <laughs> which, which is just... Which is most humbling to think I stumbled through this and people haven't got up and left. But two other things, probably of even more importance. First of all, a gentleman came to me. I mean, we were all in dinner suits and the like, so I, I didn't necessarily recognize this chap. We were all penguins together. Yeah. But this chap came up to me at the bar, literally as I was having this stiff gin afterwards to try and calm my nerves. And he explains to me that he was there to support his wife. Um, this was a local event supporting small businesses, and his wife ran a small boutique um, flower shop, I, I seem to recall, uh, and he was there to support his wife. In actual fact, his role, his position, he was the finance director for a large corporate entity, of which he explains to me 
he spends time all over the world attending big conferences and big events. And he said, I've never seen a speaker that has been so raw in sharing emotion that it became so emotive with the audience. Wow. And did that set the, the kind of the gears going in your head, going, I could do this for a living? You had your own business at the time, I think you said. Yes, very much so. I was I was the managing director of a health and safety company. Yeah, Nothing to do with speaking whatsoever. Uh, uh, but yes, it's a great question because that was the third thing that happened. There was a chap came up to me after I'd sat at the table and was being patted on the back. Some of the clients that I'd invited to come and join us didn't even know of my past career to which I was now referring to on stage. And it was all... Well, you're a dark horse, aren't you? And, and that type of jovial banter. Yeah. Everything was good. And then this chap approached me and said, I hope you don't mind me asking. I'm a speaker scout for one of the large speaker agencies. And I've been sent to go and listen to Kelvin deliver because we are particularly looking for a military speaker. Both me and Kelvin served in the British Army for a while together. The charity is an armed forces charity. Right. He said, if you're not already exclusive with the agency that sends to replace him, could we have a conversation? <laughs> Wonderful. I'm thinking, one, what's a speaker agent? Uh, and two, you know, I'm not exclusive. My, my wife would argue I am very exclusive, but um, I'm not exclusive in the speaker sense of things. What do you mean about can we have a chat? What does that lead to? And over the next three to four weeks, I was signing a contract to, uh, to be represented by them. And within three months was speaking so frequently for them that I was almost having to take leave from my own jobs to be able to meet the requirements. Most people looking at that situation would say, my goodness, I managed to survive. I had a stiff gin and probably a whiskey. That's it. <laughs> Never again. What happened? Did, did you get the bug? What changed fundamentally for you? Well, for me, it was going back to the chamber the following morning, back to the B&I the following morning, and meeting the, the event organiser who came straight over to me, patted on me on the back, congratulated me on a job well done and all that type of stuff. And he said, Jay, he said, I don't necessarily know, even though we're in B&I together, he said, I don't necessarily know you as a health and safety officer. He says, I know that that's the business that you do and this and the other. He said, but I've been in events for 24 years. He said, and I've never seen someone have such an impact on an audience so unprepared. He said, whatever you're doing in health and safety, you're possibly wasting an opportunity. You really ought to give considerations to whether you choose to do this more frequently. And it was that words of encouragement almost that told me to get back in touch with this chap and the agent and the business card and say, yeah, I'm willing to give this a go. Can you tell me what I need to do? And it, it was down to the fact that we raised a lot more money than he had ever anticipated raising that night. And I subsequently realized that I owe it to the charity, not for the 5,000 quid that I wanted to donate, but if I could raise more and more and more funds for them, then it would almost repay what they'd spent on me and perhaps help some others as well. That's a fabulous story. And I mean, I think that's the takeaway for, for anyone listening and thinking of going to speaking is, you might be better than you think. Well, and, and the other thing, which I think is key to what happened to you is a lot of people end up their first speaking experience is their boss is assigned to speak about something, right? Or their boss can't make it. Well, I'm told. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you're, and it's about some subject that their heart isn't in it. Yeah. And maybe the best way to start is, is about something that you truly care about. Take control of it yourself. Massive. In, in all fairness, if you're going to do this through choice, I think it's the only way to start. Yeah. When I started speaking, it was exactly that. My boss told me, I can't do this gig. You have to do it. 
<laughs> and it was a 10 minute talk, right? I mean, it was like a tiny, teeny, tiny little talk. It was nothing. Yeah. And wow, I mean, you know, they were the worst 10 minutes of my life. Yeah. And you still remember it years on. <laughs> <laughs> you do get the buzz from the audience. I think it, in your case, was it then, maybe this is my thing. And did you keep running the business or did you transition? Take us forward to the point now where clearly public speaking and executive coaching and all that sort of stuff is your main business. Like I say, very quickly, it starts to interfere with my day-to-day business. In order to be able to do one of the commitments that were being offered to me as a speaker, I was taking more and more time out of my business in order to be able to travel further afield to be able to deliver what it is that I delivered, that I almost ended up having to make this decision, do I start turning work speaking, speaking work down? Or do I have to employ somebody else in my business to be able to cover for the fact that I'm sometimes not there for a day or so because they want me to go and do a lunchtime in Bristol or, mm. or an evening engagement the following day in Glasgow? And it was a case of, well, I need to make a decision here. But to the same extent, my whole business is based on how do you grow a business in order to be able to make yourself redundant? Uh, and it was a case of, well, right. I'm, I'm busy teaching people to be able to build a business and systems that determine that you no longer need to be within it for it to work. And yet, I'm still fundamental within my own business. So perhaps uh, I need to practice what I preach and see if it actually works. Uh, yeah. And therefore, this is a great opportunity to be able to step outside of my business, concentrate on speaking and see what happens to the business in the background. And because of my speaking career and the way it took off, I subsequently chose about 14, 15 months later to sell the business and just concentrate on speaking. And the business, of course, was saleable because you had put in place the operational capability that the business could run itself effectively. Yeah. I mean, in four years, we grew from four staff to 22 staff. Yeah. And when I sold it, there was 22 staff. And that was in 2011. And as of Christmas this year, um, it's currently got 36 staff. So the model continues to operate and work and grow continually. And it just freed me up to be able to have the availability to be able to, to go on this wild journey that it's been for the last what, 10 years now um, that's taken me around the world a couple of times and, and the likes um, to, to pursue whatever it is that speaking has to throw at me. Absolutely amazing. And I love the fact that what you speak about is something that you have to actually do so that you can speak. That's just so neat. It's amazing. Can we take a short diversion into that, actually? Because it's something that I find fascinating is creating the right operational structure for a business. And I've seen it work well, and I've seen it work badly. And it's such a powerful thing for anyone. I mean, even if you're not a business owner, even if you're just looking after a team. I mean, without going into the the deep details, what did you do? What what were the kind of key things that you put in place in that business? First of all, uh, and people will scoff when I say this, but first of all, You should never, ever, ever underestimate the power of a well-written business plan. okay. All of those people that believe that a business plan is only for if you need finance um, are missing a trick. Uh, And the comparative is, without a business plan, you're busy getting in the car and driving at 60, 70 miles an hour without a sat-nav or any form of signs or directions in the hope that you're ever going to meet your destination. And your business plan is your map. It allows you to be able to determine as to, I've already pre-considered all of the different options to establish as to whether I should turn left or right at each crossroads in order to maintain that I'm always traveling in the right destinations to rest right directions towards my destination. Yeah. People don't like writing business plans because they require thinking, hard thinking. <laughs> and, and ironically, I genuinely believe that the real art of a business plan is the thinking and not the end result. 
I think there's so much more value in being able to give due considerations to filling in the business plan than in actual fact what the business plan does at the end. Yeah, and then if you struggle with it, it's 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 literally because you thought you just write down whatever was in your head, and it turns out maybe it doesn't hang together so well. Very much so, because you often find that when you read it back and read through the executive summary, that you've either fallen out in love, fallen out of love with your business before you've even started it because of what it now requires from you. Or it helps you so, so quickly and easily identify where the gaps are, which otherwise you're going to fall into and create this glass ceiling that when you're in the business and in the busyness of business, that you fail to get out of at all. Another uh, technique, I don't know if you've come across this one, which is similar, is uh, something called a decision journal. Yes. I've done that for the current business uh, and it's marvelous. Maybe you want to take our audience through that. Let's just quickly offer an analogy. Yeah. I'm assuming that most listeners at some stage in life have chosen that they're not going to cook their evening tea. They're going to go out and buy a Chinese takeaway. Right. And you've turned up in your favorite Chinese takeaway, and the person's called out and said, you know, how can I help you? He said, just a minute. I just need to make a choice. And you look up at the menu, and then you're overwhelmed by the 260 different choices that are available to you. Yeah. <laughs> you have every single different fish under the sun with every different sauce under the sun and every different rice under the sun and every different noodle under the sun. Do you know what? I'm going to order what I always have. Oh, yeah. 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 And the simple fact is that if we overwhelm people with choice, then they un- invariably choose not to choose. And they stay in the, that, that element of safety and comfortability, which ultimately becomes their downfall because they're not making any movement or progress. And through a decision journal, we use it to be able to say, you've got to make a decision. You've got to, These are the options available to you. You've got to opt for one of them. And therefore, how do you rule out all the things that you don't want to do in order that you can fully commit to the one that you're actually going to do? And I find that um, it keeps you intellectually honest, right? Because the key is reviewing the decisions and you write down at the time why you made them so you can't rewrite history to fool yourself the biggest competition in business i find is your own head not the other guy i would say probably 80 percent of my time as a coach is spent helping on working on headspace as opposed to on systems or processes Um, and although we're often spending time in headspace talking about systems and processes it's actually helping people to understand that if you want a different set of results you first got to do a different set of actions and that usually determines a different set of thinking let's apply that to the current situation let's come back to speaking sure so the world has changed there's a lot of crazy stuff going on we had events being cancelled or postponed to later this year now they're being cancelled completely and it's 2021 there's a whole bunch of online stuff happening and a whole bunch of experiments and virtual. I don't even know where to start, right? So maybe just take us through your perspective on what on earth is happening with events and where is it all going to end up? Well, to answer that, just to be able to put a little bit of context to it, I was really fortunate that one of my speaker agents, I'm now registered with two agencies, one in the UK and one in India. And the Indian agency contacted me about April time and said, we're putting together a conclave of business of 
people in the event space internationally to be able to discuss collectively as to what we think the way forward is or how to be able to overcome this current crisis. Would you be willing to take part? And I was like, I was very flattered to have been offered. I'd be delighted to have a conversation. And it it evolved that 60 of us um, over a period of three days had a series of tabletop talks about our joint experience and expectations with regards to how perhaps collaboratively or collectively we could find a way and move forward. It's on that authority that I feel comfortable in being able to share my thoughts on the basis that this is based not only on my own judgment, but that of 59 other people in the event space. Right. And we genuinely believe that this crisis is a four-step process. There is lockdown, um, and we've been through that, and we're going to continue to see some localised lockdowns as the R number continues to rise and fall in localised areas. But there is lockdown. There is immediate post-lockdown, which is what we're now in at the present, with you know some areas are locked and some areas aren't. There is pre-vaccine and there is post-vaccine. And all of the event managers, and some of these people are, are running 20, 25,000 events a year worldwide. Some of these people are employing 30, 40, 50,000 people in the event space worldwide. Um, there was the international head of Marriott Hotels on the call. And they were saying that all of their international events, any event with an expected attendee list of more than 500 people, and they're already saying that they're not going to start planning that until after April 2022. My goodness. Um, So anyone in the event space, we've got to pivot. We've got to find another method of being able to manage that time until 2022 in the hope that by then we've got a post-vaccine environment to be able to operate in. But we've also got to give considerations to the new normal that we're now in. And it might be that we choose not to move back to the old model, that the new model of whatever we devise over the next few weeks and months becomes the normal. Because it has certain advantages. I mean, you like you know, even small events suddenly have attendees from all over the world. It's really easy to get a speaker from anywhere. It's much cheaper to run. The downside, of course, is the virtual experience is pretty rubbish. Yes, that's the risk. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember watching an interview with Tim Berners Lee a few years ago now, with regards to talking about the the creation and gift that he gave the world with the the World Wide Web. And the interviewer, I can't even recall her name, but, but the interviewer said, at that time, it was a few years ago now, it's, uh, I think it's 29 years since the World Wide Web was first gifted to the world, but I think this was two or three years ago. And she said, 26 years ago, you gifted the World Wide Web. And yet 26 years later, we might argue that you cursed the world with the World Wide Web. How do you plead? You know, what's, mm. what's your pleasure, if you like? And what she meant by that, or what she went on to suggest, was 26 years ago, you gave us the methods to be able to communicate with anybody else on the planet. And yet 26 years later, now everybody on the planet is trying to compete with you to be able to communicate with somebody in that 24-hour space. There is no off switch to the internet. We can't take it out of our lives. Now it's here. Google is now a common word in everybody's dictionary in every language in the world that we've moved into a new space. But in doing so, we've become very clinical and two-dimensional. We've lost that emotive edge through the lens of a webcam that perhaps we are now lacking compared to that of a physical event. And therefore, in order for digital events to be able to have the same impact, 
we've got to go back to understanding that the words that we speak are no more than 36% of communication. And the tone and the volume and the, the ambience and the environment, uh, the content and context of that, the body language that goes with it, makes up more than 50% of communication itself. And if we can't evolve that, if we can't find a means of being able to develop that other 56% of content that is being missed by only listening to the words being spoken, then our engagement with that word, that word and those words, the power of those words is going to always be limited in its method unless we can find a method of being able to overcome that and become a more interactive experience. Yeah. So how do we do that? Are we still searching? Have you started seeing things that work? Or is it still very much an open game? I think at the moment, it's still very, very, very much experimental. Yeah. One of the things that we've got to understand is that we have five senses and we have three learning styles. You know, there's the visual, the audio and the kinesthetic. And what we're tending to find, certainly with the, you know, the evolution and the growth and the, the, the explosion of Zoom and Zoom meetings and webinars now, I firmly believe that this has moved that industry on by, by about 10 years in about three months, forced on us um, to be able to quickly evolve, almost not, not be able to catch up with the evolution because of what's happened with COVID and the lockdown. But what we've got to give due considerations to is if people have got three learning styles, the visual style, the auditory style, and the kinesthetic style, is how do we enable us to be able to provide that type of an experience digitally in order to be able to meet those learning styles so you don't lose listeners? Is the onus on the speaker or is it on the technologist? I think it's on both to be yeah. able to work collaboratively, to be able to say, how do we bridge this gap that's been created which was otherwise covered by a physical experience. Um, and what one of the one of the ways that we're now seeing this evolve is through far more interactive webinar as opposed to the pre-recorded evergreen stuff that was ever put out in the past. Right. So being able to go live, to be able to not have a PowerPoint slide deck that hides your face and your emotion, to be able to have the speaker that's got multiple screens in front of them in order that they can see every attendee as opposed to just the selection that Zoom offer you across the top of a screen. And to be able to be far more interactive, either through having an app where people can click on and have live interaction with the screen or with the presenter, or being able to make it a two-way conversation. You know, if you look at it in a positive as opposed to a negative, if you were to book to see me speak, the last time I delivered a keynote was in the NEC in Birmingham. If you paid for a non-premium seat, then you might have been listening to me and observing me on stage from 30, 40, possibly even 50 meters away from stage. Yeah. On a webcam experience, I'm about 45, 50 centimeters from the lens and you're about 50 or 60 centimetres from the other side of your screen. You've got a front row VIP seat and a one-to-one -one experience with another uh, a speaker that was otherwise 50 or 60 metres away. It's become far more opportunistic of intimacy with that speaker, and we've got to be able to maximise on that to, to overcome the fact that there isn't that physical intervention in a room. How many people were at that keynote, right? You can't do that with thousands of people. That intimacy is limited to, what, 50, maybe? I, I would argue probably probably larger than 50. Yeah. 
at the moment, we're still running interactive events. Um, I did one on Friday for 172 people. Oh, wait. Okay. So how did that go? Exceptional. I'm out of 50, yeah. 58 inquiries of, of being able to do further work with people from the audience. It was a great conversion. That's awful. 172 people. That's awfully nice. Wow. And what about the role of the MC? I mean, a lot of people that I'm speaking to are starting to say that digital events need more curation, that you really need an MC to keep the dynamic going, especially if you have multiple speakers. Massively. And I think that's that, that's key is the fact that, you know, for speakers to be able to do this effectively, we've got to get over ourselves and our ego and to be able to say the best experience for the end user is to have a multi-speaker event like you would do in a big conference hall. It's not to believe that, you know, we're, we're all going to do this in our own back bedroom, as it were, and expect to be able to get the same type of reach or opportunity, but also that there is a key role here for an MC and for a technician to be able to manage all of the technical aspects in order for you to deliver what you deliver and to be able to manage the, the chat function and the social media function and the, the live streamings to YouTube or to Facebook or wherever it is that you're pushing this event to be able to get eyes on, is to have a team behind you to be able to manage all of that process in order that you can just concentrate on the, the end user as opposed to having to continually, just a minute while I quickly check chat and answer this question or let this person into the waiting room there's got to be a process that we follow and a team's to be able to do that well in order that you don't take away from that experience on the understanding that automatically by delivering this through a lens as opposed to in person, you've already created a barrier. You can't afford to create another barrier by continually trying to do every you know, jack of all trades, master of none. I've done radio interviews, you know, where you enter the studio and experienced radio professionals are completely amazing. I don't know how they do their jobs. They're sitting in front of it. It looks like the space shuttle. Yep. They're interviewing you and pressing buttons and fading it. I mean, it's amazing. But there's a reason there's not a lot of them. That's a really difficult skill set to learn. But in order to learn it, they've started at the bottom as an apprentice. They've, they've, they've made coffee for the boom man. Oh, yeah. Um, They've been on the audio decks. They've been on the microphone decks. They've they've learned bit at a time, bit at a time, bit at a time, and built it up to become the the Tony Blackburns of this world. But in actual fact, he's taken a career to do so. Uh, and yet, you know, we've been thrust into this world of digital delivery over a very, very, very quick period. Certainly for some people that have perhaps never done this before. And then the assumption that we're going to be competent enough to be able to do all of these things well enough to value the person's time enough to give them the experience that they deserve, as opposed to saying, do you know what? I'm a bloody good speaker. I know what I talk about. I know what my experience in this area, but I'm a novice when it comes to webinar and digital delivery. And therefore, I need someone that's competent in that area to be able to support the back end of stuff so I don't dilute the competency I've got on stage to deliver what I deliver. Yeah, we're going to see a new, a new sense of professionalism around events. Up to now, it's been throw stuff up on Zoom and everybody knows it's going to be a bit, a bit nasty. But now we need to see a new professionalism arising, don't we? Massively so. You know, I, one of the things I talk about when I do speaker training with people is it's not about the words that you speak. It's not about the, the, the time that we spend together on stage, although that's key and important. It's about the impact that you have in their lives that they subsequently do something different as a result of the speech that determines as to whether you are actually any good or not at all. 
And that comes down to you honouring your audience by them being willing to give up their times to listen to what you have to share and not being so arrogant as to believe that I'm going to charge you a fortune, people are going to come and pay and listen to me, and that's good enough. Because ironically, it might have been in the 80s and 90s and noughties, but we've got to be far more respectful of the fact that in a 24-7 connectivity world, I can log on to, this is my third webinar interview today. I can, I can log on to a plethora of different things that are available to me. At a moment's notice, I could log in and watch this or listen to that or download this. I could be in a 100 different places other than where I've chosen to visit your web address and listen to your presentation. And we've just got to be respectful of people's time and consideration and willingness to be able to donate some of their valuable time to us by being able to honour them with a, a good experience that's professionally delivered and really gives considerations to what are we giving them beyond that 25, 30 minutes of engagement that they go away and, and get real value from that beyond the live experience that they've had at the time. It sounds like, just to go back to something we were talking about earlier, you should almost have the idea of a mini business plan for any individual talk in terms of everybody's investing a certain amount in the talk. What are the outcomes? I don't accept any speaker booking any longer unless I can speak to the event organizer or the audience manager to establish what are you hoping to achieve as a result of this? And therefore, I can determine as to whether I'm the right person to deliver that message for them. Yeah. If your attitude is just getting up and speaking and I get the money and that's it and I walk away and I, yeah, you've got to know why. Well, here's a challenge for anyone that's listening to this and, and, and not believing that what I have to say is of credence and importance, that money loves to play the game chase. It's almost like a game of cat and mouse with money being the mouse and us being the fat cat. And whatever our intent, whatever our motive is to simply chase the money, then you'll always find that the mouse is far more agile and loves to play the game chase. Yeah. And the moment that you give up the chase and understand that your real importance, the real value of what you have to offer is to be of service to their audience and to say, what can I do? What can I deliver in order to be able to respect their time enough that has an impact on them for the rest of their life? you'll often find that the more people that we are able to influence and the bigger influence we have on them, the more the mouse becomes bored of not being chased and simply comes and jumps into your back pocket. That's what happened in your very first talk. I mean, if, if you think about it, right? It was for a purpose that had nothing really to do with it's just a job or anything like that. You sort of stumbled onto the core essence of, of how to reach people. Yeah, absolutely. I remember the agent saying to me, how much do you charge? And I'm thinking, well, well, I've just paid a thousand pounds to be able to. <laughs> I paid. I've just paid a thousand pounds to put the table to which I've now been entertaining. So a thousand quid, and he went, "Done, you're hired." I'm thinking, "Wow, I've just paid for my dinner." <laughs> oh, wonderful, Jay! That is a fabulous place to wrap up. Uh, it's been an absolute joy uh, and and really quite inspirational. I think while many of us perhaps wouldn't wouldn't get into speaking in quite the same way. It's massively encouraging to know that the right way to do it is, is to focus on what matters, to speak from the heart. That's my takeaway from today. Thank you so much. Richard, thank you so much for the invitation. Most grateful for the offer. Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. 
Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, and one you can also learn. Visit voxgig.com slash speakers to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check out our sponsor, simplecast.com, who helped make this podcast possible. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward. <laughs>